We're going to be doing a new series now for the next five weeks on, the fa- on God the Father from the Gospel of John. And if you have a Bible, it'd be great to turn to John's Gospel and chapter 1, because although we are going to put the words up here from the text, it's great to have the Bible with you, because then you can check that what I'm saying is true, you can go back and reread it, you can let your mind wander if I'm talking about something that doesn't interest you, and so on. So we're going to be looking at a series in the God the Father, and taking a few sections of John's Gospel and exploring what it reveals about the nature of God. That's the goal for the next five weeks until about half term or so. And today we're going to start with a talk called the, the Father Revealed in the Son. The God the Father Revealed in the Son. But I want to start by assuming that you're not a Christian this morning. I know most of you are. Some aren't. But I know most of you are. But I still want to talk for the first few minutes as if you're not a Christian today and just imagine uh, just why what we're going to talk about this morning and during this series is significant even for those who are not Christians. In fact, in some ways especially so I'm going to assume that you're not a Christian, you don't accept the authority of the Bible, you, the jury is still out as to whether or not what we're doing here is completely crazy, um, but you're just observing and looking in. And my suggestion to you is that if that's the case for you, and you're not a believer in Jesus at the moment, the question really, the main question to ask in life is not whether or not God exists. The main question to ask whether or not we're Christians is, if God exists, what is he like? Actually, the main question isn't really whether God exists or not. It's extremely likely that God does exist. I'll explain why I'm saying that in a moment. That a divine being exists. That's very, very likely. And actually, the vast majority of people in this country already believe that. So the chances are very high that you do, even if you're not a Christian here. That's not the issue. That's not what people tend to argue about, really, the existence of the divine. The question is much more about the nature or character of such a divine being. What's it like? He, she, it, they. What, what is God like? That becomes a much more pressing issue. But I want to explain why I think it's true that you should probably believe in God anyway. And that most people, and why it's true that most people do. There's dozens of good arguments for it in my view, but here's just one. I want you to consider this for a moment, okay? You, you're not a Christian. And I want to try and convince you in about three minutes that it's very, very likely that God does exist. Okay? Which will be fun. Um, if God, if I, we have two options, right? God exists, there is a divine, there is a spiritual world, and there is a God at the center of that. Or, everything exists is physical matter, right? which is a belief we call materialism or naturalism. Every single thing that exists is physical stuff. Or, there is some sort of divine mind, consciousness, being behind the physical world. Those are our options. In fact, almost every thoughtful atheist I've ever heard of knows that they are a materialist. They believe, no, everything is matter. That's all there is. Matter, everything. Or there is God and the divine. And that's, those are, that's right. Those are the two options. So I want to say for a minute, okay, let's, let's for a moment assume that God doesn't exist. What sense do we make of the world? Everything is matter. Okay, that's the, a consistent view. And if everything is matter, if everything is material, then so is consciousness. Right? Everything you think is material. Thoughts, ideas, information, emotions, feelings, those things are actually, although they might feel like they're spiritual and nebulous in some way, they're not. They're actually just physical reactions in your brain. That's all they are. And in fact, the things you're thinking now, whether about what I'm saying or about something else, are just subatomic collisions taking place in your head. They are, in that sense, mechanical. They are collisions of neurons and atoms telling you to do and think certain things. And if that's true, then you don't have any freedom of thought, actually, at all, independently of your material body. 
You think you do. It feels like you can choose, I'm going to do this or do that. But actually, as a lot of materialists, would, consistent materialists would say, no, you don't. It, freedom is an illusion. That's not the way we are. We actually don't decide to eat cornflakes versus shredded wheat. We just, our brain has done that for us. Our, a collision has taken place in our heads that makes us act that way. You don't actually have any freedom of thought at all. You don't have freedom whether to believe something or not. You are simply the subject of something mechanical happening back here. I was debating on the radio with the president of the National Secular Society a few years ago, and he completely conceded this. He admitted, he said, yeah, that is, I am a determinist. I believe everything you believe is a result of physical things happening in your brain. You don't truly have freedom at all. A consistent materialist who doesn't believe in the divine or the spiritual would have to say that. And that's interesting because that means that there is no reason to believe that what you believe is true. Because your brain could be just tricking. There's no correspondence. You don't have a freedom to believe it or not. Your brain is just colliding in certain ways and set itself up in a particular way that makes you think something's true, even if it isn't. The only thing it could tell you is that it, it's advantageous to your survival to believe it. But it doesn't tell you if it's true or not. In other words, if materialism is true, there is no reason for you to believe that it is true. You can't be, because you've got no ground to say, oh, is, is, this, is my thought here actually got access to reality? The answer will be, well, probably not. It'd be a huge coincidence if it was, or maybe a miracle if it was. The reality is, I don't have any reason to believe my own thoughts if the only thing that exists is matter. And again, in this debate, the radio debate I had with this guy, I said, so are you saying that you actually believe that Hitler and I are both, both did or both are doing exactly what we are effectively programmed to do and don't truly have freedom at all? And he said, well, consistently, that is what I think, yes. If that's true, you have no reason to believe that your, th your belief that materialism is true is true. That's the problem. And that, I think, is a significant enough problem that it means only if we have to start probably accept that that's probably a false view of the world because it's so, so tricky to actually hold it and affirm that the belief you hold is true that you probably have to entertain the prospect that it's very likely God or the divine or the spiritual does exist and start from that foundation instead and that's why I say I don't think the question is does God exist or not I think actually almost everybody believes God does exist the, the real question is what's God like or what is the divine like and that I think is what we need to ask and that is where the Christian answer found in John 1 comes in so there'd be lots and lots of people, you know, probably we've got 65 million people in this country, probably only 5 million of them actively disbelieve in any God. And many of them may not even have thought about what I've just said. But then the other 60 million are going, no, I believe in some sort of divine or God or being. Most people we know believe in some sort of divine, but what they don't agree on is how you can know what that God is like and what their nature is. And that's what we're going to look at now in John chapter 1. And so the Christian answer is the Father is revealed in the Son. And here's how John 1, among many other places, comes to show that. John 1, 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him wasn't anything made that has been made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He wasn't the light, but he came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which enlightens everyone, was coming into the world. 
He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world didn't know him. He came to his own, and his own people didn't receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, or the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh, and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, this was he of whom I said, he who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. And from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. So what is God like? Is God like, as many people in the ancient world believe, the Greek gods? The Greek gods are generally big projections of what human beings are like. They're just very large versions of you and me. So they fight and they fornicate and they squabble and they kill and then they avenge and they get into big arguments and then they decide they're going to give things to human beings. And so they do. They give human beings gifts, but the gifts are more like booby traps. If you you studied any Greek mythology, that's generally what they are. They, They give you a gift and they say, behold, fire. And man goes, oh, great, fire. And then, oh, actually, for discovering fire, you're going to have to be strapped to a rock having your liver eaten every day by birds. You think, oh, that's nice. Thanks for the gift. It's really, really sweet of you. Or, behold, a woman. And the man gets given a woman in Greek mythology, and then it turns out that Pandora's box, all this horrible, evil stuff comes out from within, and the whole world goes wrong because of this gift that's actually more like a booby trap. Are the gods like that? Are the gods compromised, egotistical, squabbly creatures, basically like you and me, just bigger? Is that what God is like? Or is God like Allah, the God of Islam, from Surah 9 in the Quran? Fight those who do not believe in Allah, nor the last day, until they, even if they are of the people of the book, until they pay the tax with willing submission and feel themselves subdued. Is that what God is like? People don't believe in, the, in your God? Fight them until they submit to you. Is that what God is like? Or is God like the God of deism? The God where the, really the idea that the God has created the world and wound it up. Big clock is often the image we use. Said so he's made the world. It works. God's gone off to do something else and the world is continuing just to unwind slowly. And the God, if you could even call him, he, she, it, they, that, that God has created something and he's powerful in that sense but has got no real interest in fixing the world, has gone off to occupy himself with other things and this world may be full of suffering and mess and this, cho- this God chooses to remain aloof and just say, that's okay. I don't really care. Is God like that? Or is God like this painting, which you may have seen before, this sort of very terrifying, angry, scary, growly God, who is sort of, oh, I, to be honest, I made a world and not so sure I should have, and now I'm going to smite you, and for good measure, I'm going to smite this poor, innocent son of mine as well, and smash him around in order to demonstrate how angry I am with the world. <laughs> is he like that? Richard Dawkins describes that kind of picture of God. Um, arguably the most unpleasant character in all fiction, he says. Jealous and proud of it. A petty, unjust, unforgiving control freak. A vindictive, bloodthirsty ethnic cleanser. This is his view of the God of the Bible, by the way. A misogynistic, homophobic, racist, infanticidal, genocidal, filicidal, pestilential, megalomaniacal, sadomasochistic, capriciously malevolent bully. So he doesn't like him very much, right? But is God like that? Is, Is that vision of God, is that true? 
So you've got the Greek gods, or Allah, or the God of Deism, or Richard Dawkins' vision of the sort of angry God. Maybe another kind of God. But to me, those, they're, they're scary thoughts. What if the maker of the universe is like that? What if the God who made everything actually is trying to catch you out with tricks? Or thinks people should be killed if they don't believe in him? Or is like that? Or any number of other things? Or just doesn't care? What if God is like that? What hope would there be for anything getting better? And the answer that John gives in this passage, and the answer that Christians have clung to with joy for thousands of years, is this. God is just like Jesus. That's the Christian vision of God. God is just like Jesus. The Father is revealed in the Son. That's how you know what God is like. You look at the person of Jesus, and you see that is, in him, is the fullness of deity dwells bodily, is how Paul described it. In him, everything you need to know about God is expressed fully. And you're then able to look at his character and say, oh, that's what the divine being is like. And that is very, very, very good news, for, not just for a Christian, but for everybody. Let me show you why that's true in the passage. Can you just go back to the first Bible passage slide? So verse 1 of John 1, right? In the beginning was the Word, God's spoken voice. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, so distinct from him, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. So we have two beings here. We have God and the Word, and the Word reflects the being of God, is distinct from him, but at the same time is him, which is a very difficult idea to understand, and you can see why Christians spent hundreds of years figuring out how to talk about it. Then if you just go down a few slides to verse 18, the last Bible passage slide, verse 18 makes a similar claim. No one has ever seen God. In, right, this guy, invisible. My son is six, and he's trying to get his head around that at the moment. So we, this morning, went out, just let the dog out. It's dark outside. Open the back door. Dog goes out. Oh, the stars. Oh, yeah. Should we, say, should we thank God for the stars? Thank you, God, for the stars. God didn't answer. He says as he walks back inside because he, he's finding the idea of God not being a visible, tangible creature who says audible things is confusing to him. It is, right? So John says, no one's ever seen God. And my son has got that, right? No one's ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. That's how you see what God is like. The New Revised Standard Version, I love it. In this verse, it says, the, it, says um, it is God the only Son who is close to the Father's heart who has made him known. I think that's a beautiful way of translating it. John is saying, if you want to know what God is like, whom you cannot see, look at Jesus, whom you can. That's what you do. And if you want to know, God is, is not sort of a, a physical being in history, but Jesus is. And so you look at Jesus, and then you can see what God is like. The Father is revealed in the Son. Theologian Thomas Torrance said, and I love this idea, he said, there is in fact no God behind the back of Jesus. Some of us imagine that, sneaking around behind. Jesus is lovely. Come to me, all who are weak and heavy laden. Children, come to me. Prostitutes and sinners, come to me. Little sheep, sit on my lap. But behind him is this God going, I'm going to come and get you. And Thomas Torrance is saying, there is no, in fact no God behind the back of Jesus. No act of God other than the act of Jesus. No God but the God we see and meet in him. Jesus Christ is the open heart of God. The very love and life of God poured out to redeem mankind. The mighty hand and power of God stretched out to heal and save sinners. All things are in God's hands, but the hands of God and the hands of Jesus in life and in death are the same. That's a very powerful way of putting it. And he's just trying to make the point that John 1 is making. If you want to know what God is like, you look at Jesus. The Father is revealed in the Son. Now I've said that's, that's a 
For, for those of us who are not Christians, that's an important thing to bear in mind. Okay, well, if there, if there is a God, and it, there are good reasons, I think, for believing that there very, very likely is, what is God like? I think that's a huge issue for an, a person who's not a Christian. And this is the Christian answer that we've just seen. You can just remove that slide, if you like, for the moment, because um, we'll come back to that later. Um, but, so it's important for someone who's not a Christian. But I think it's very important for those who are Christians as well. Really important issue for Christians to consider because in my experience, a lot of Christians also don't think of God as being quite like Jesus in practice. So it might happen this. Um, I don't know if you ha- had the experience ever of praying and sort of thinking that if you pr- God might not l- want you to have something, but Jesus is really nice and so he probably would. So you don't pray to God, you pray to Jesus instead. Has anybody ever done? I'm not asking for a show of hands because obviously theologically it's weird, but actually, Christians, even if we know we're not supposed to, there might be within us an inclination that the, the, the God wouldn't want us to, give us to have something, but maybe Jesus would. If dad says no, just ask mum. She might give it to you. Is it that kind of dynamic at work or sometimes seen to be at work? And that image really is that behind Jesus there is a, a crosser, more impatient, less compassionate and gracious, angrier sort of God. Sometimes people play them off against each other, even in the Old and New Testaments. You know, Jesus is this lovely, ah, ah, and then behind him is the kind of God. And he's the Old Testament one, and then Jesus Jesus is the New Testament. And there's a sort of tension between them. And even Christians can operate, even if they think it's not logically true, can act as if it is in the way they pray, or the way they sing, or the way they live in their normal life. We can think of Jesus in that sense like a trick, like a Trojan horse. Jesus is the Trojan horse. Jesus goes into, and you allow him into your heart like the Trojans allowed the horse into their city. Welcome, Jesus. Come into my life. And then when you're asleep, out from within comes all of this dark, evil stuff that comes to savage you and destroy you. Jesus, wonderful, come into my heart. Oh, no, now the, the God behind Jesus has come out from within. He's bursting like a jack-in-the-box and comes and gets me. In my family, we don't really, um, we don't really do Trojan horses, but for us, the, the very clear Trojan, Trojan horse reality is Pingu. I don't know if you're familiar with, some of you are, some of you can see life stage-wise. Anybody here never heard of Pingu? Just think you don't know what I'm talking about. Okay, so Pingu is a fictional penguin on CBeebies, which is a you know, children's TV station. And Pingu is, um, I don't think there's anything frightening about it. Does anybody else, any of your kids scared of Pingu? Any people with young children here? Not yet, no? Okay, I there's nothing intrinsically scary about him, but my son is utterly, utterly terrified of him. Uh, for he, in fact... Zeke isn't scared of things he should be, so he's not frightened enough of certain things that are bad. He's not frightened of, like, the devil. He's not frightened of the bogeyman. He doesn't care about any of those things. He's terrified of Pingu. So Pingu, for him, is the embodiment of all evil. And we find that Zeke's got a... Tra- so Zeke, he's autistic, and, and I think that is probably part of the story. So when you, read him the bu- when you read him the Bible, he gets the heroes and villains wrong. So he's not very interested in the God characters, but he loves the villains because they're scowling and shouting all the time, and he loves telling people off. And unfortunately, when we read in biblical stories, we know that the ones he will gravitate to are the ones with angry villains in them. And then he starts quoting them to people. And he did it the other day. He was in the park um, and was playing on the swings and slide. And a kid comes up and he, and he just pushed, so pushed him away and said, no, if you do that again, God will punish you, which is a quotation from the Pharaoh story. And he loves the idea that somebody might do that. And um, he's just continued, no, go away. I do not know your God. He loved, just loves talking to people he doesn't know. I don't mean friends or family members with whom it's kind of acceptable. Children he's never met before. I do not know your God. The other day he was walking down the street uh, in Seaside in Eastbourne. I was just walking along and a random man who's done nothing to him, he starts quoting Herod to him. Go and find the boy. I will be the only king of the Jews. He starts shouting. It's really worrying. And obviously really quite anti-Semitic as well. Um, and does 
doesn't come across very well in that sort of context. So he's, he's just not got the right understanding of villains and heroes. That, that his world is a bit inverted. But Pingu is the embodiment of evil for him. And the reason it is, is because in my parents' house, there is a cloth penguin about yay high like this, sort of like a cuddly toy thing, which was hanging up in their kitchen. And Zeke would walk past the penguin, and it would just sit in the kitchen. But unfortunately, it's one of those ones that within it has a voice, a kind of, a, and actually quite a growly sort of sound. And Zeke was, at a young age, he was very scared about things, and probably about two or three, and he was terrified because he was walking through my parents' kitchen, and he brushed past this penguin, and it made this growly noise at him, and he ran out the room shrieking and screaming, no, penguin's going to get me, penguin! And even now, we're going to my parents this afternoon, and from here, I'm going to my parents. And they live up near Gatwick. And when we go, it has to be clear, clarified many, many times. Pingu's not going to be there. Pingu's not going to be there. No, Zeke, it's okay. Pingu isn't going to be there. Pingu's at the North Pole. Brackets, don't get me started. I know penguins don't come from the North Pole, but my wife does not. Close brackets. And so he can, Pingu's not going to be there. Pingu's at the North Pole. And then, in fact, after a while, Pingu, it wasn't safe enough for Pingu to be at the North Pole. Pingu's at the North Pole in a rubbish bin. And for him now, that's okay. We're safe. If Pingu is at the North Pole in a rubbish bin. The reason he's frightened of this being is because he looks cuddly and nice and accessible and friendly. And then within comes this dark growl that he hates and is terrifying. And some of us respond to God like that. Some of us think Jesus is this cloth, cuddly version of God who I'd love to get my arms around. But unfortunately, within is this growl that somebody wants to come and get me. And John's testimony in this whole text is, there is no God in heaven who is not like Jesus. There is no growl from within the penguin. There is no dark army with inside the Trojan horse. That's just the wrong way of thinking about him. Instead, you have a God and you have a word who, or who is close to the Father's heart who perfectly reveals him so you can see what God is like. The word was with God and the word was God. And that, as I said, is a difficult idea to explain. But I think to a degree we get a sense of it every time we make a phone call right, in our world. I think something about, how, I don't understand, how do you get this idea that there is a, a being and then there is a word of the being that both is distinct from the being but nevertheless fully represents them to you? How is that possible? Well, I think to a degree we have that every time we make a phone call. Who are you talking to, John? Oh, I'm on the phone to Abby. Technically, you're not. Technically, you are currently talking to a series of digital noises which are coming out of a metal box, which is connected through some mysterious process via maybe satellite or airways or something, I'm not sure, to another metal box into which Abby is speaking. You're not talking to Abby at all, you fool. You're talking to a series of noises. And he would say to me, yeah, but for me, really, those noises, the words I can hear are Abby. It, it doesn't, it's not unrealistic for me to think of them as being her to me because of the distance between us. And yet, at the same time, I know that technically they're not exactly the same, but they represent her so fully that it's okay to think that way. Perhaps in some ways it's even more like Skype, where you don't just have the words, you also have the image. The Bible says Jesus is the image of the invisible God. So actually, Jesus is not just the word of God, but the image of God as well. So it's like Skyping. Somebody comes in, who are you Skyping? I'm Skyping Rachel. No, you're not. You're Skyping that computer again, aren't you? It's like, well... Yes, in the sense that it's not actually Rachel, but at the same time, I know that the way she is embodied is perfectly being represented here by the image and by the word. Jesus is that to God. So in that sense, it would be fair to say that the Skype image revealed, that, that Rachel is revealed in the Skype image and Abby is revealed on the phone call. It, that's meaningful to talk that way without you equating the two. And the Bible, John is, without using images of Skype, of course, John is saying that's kind of how Jesus stands to God, as a word which fully reveals and represents him and yet is distinct from him. And just in case you 
you're wondering, you know, that this is not just John having a weird theological day, going, let's just throw some theology out there to bamboozle people. This is what Jesus himself says. John 10.30, I and the Father are one. John 14.9, don't you know, folks? Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. It's the testimony of the Christian creeds. Christians have affirmed this together for 1,700 years. Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father by whom all things were made. Christians have said that because they're trying to say the Father is revealed in the Son. There's no difference. There's no pingu here. It's simply that one embodies, reflects, and perfectly demonstrates the nature of the other. That's what God is like. So if our question, rather than being, does God exist? Yeah, okay, fine, he probably does, but that doesn't tell, him, tell me much. If the question becomes, what is God like? The Christian answer is, the God is just like Jesus. The Father is revealed in the Son. So if your image or picture or functional working model of God is not like Jesus, John says, you're doing it wrong. That's not what he's like. He is like this. He's like this man. So what? So what? what? Why, why do we care? You know, is that just a, an interesting little, well, yeah, you've made a problem which we didn't have anyway and now you've solved it. Well, thanks. Is that, is that the case? Or is there any sticky practical reality to what we're saying and what John is telling us here? And I think there is. Because if the Father is revealed in the Son, then the things which are true of Jesus are all true of God, in that sense. The things which are true of his character are all true of God. So, when you walk through John's Gospel, chapter 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, you find lots and lots of things which are said of Jesus, and all of those things are also true of God. And that matters enormously. So the Father is the source of God who, in John 1, calls disciples by name, and knows everything about their lives, like Jesus does in John 1. He says, come and follow me to people. And they say, why should I follow you? I don't know anything about you. And he says, oh, don't worry, I knew you way before. I saw you when you were sitting under that fig tree. And the guy goes, nobody was there when I was sitting under the fig tree. How can you know this? And Jesus said, I already know everything about you, and I'm calling you to follow me. He's that kind. That's not just what Jesus is like. That's what God is like. He knows all that there is to know about you, and he calls you to follow him anyway. He's the kind of God who in John 2 goes to a wedding party and says, seriously, somebody's run out of wine? How profoundly embarrassing. Or the equivalent in Aramaic or Greek or Hebrew or whatever it would have been. So how, oh goodness, the first thing I'll do is sort that out. Here's some vats, some huge jars of wine. Everybody have a great time. And by the way, I didn't substitute with the plonk. I made sure it was the best wine available because I want you guys to have a party. God's like that. God is the kind of God who walks into a room and says, you've run out of wine? Well, let me fix that immediately before we get on to anything else. God is the kind of God who in John 3 stays up late at night reasoning and debating with skeptics. He finds people who don't trust him and aren't sure about whether or not he, what he's saying is good or right. And he says, instead of saying, go and kill them, which is the way that some other gods would function, he says, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to stay up late into the night, anytime, any place. If you want to talk, I'll be there, Nicodemus. We will hang out and debate and go back and forth, and I'll ask you questions, and you can ask me questions, and we can reason together so that you can see why this message is good news and why the kingdom of God is powerful. He's that kind of God. It's not just Jesus is like that, but behind him is this other God. No, the God of the universe wants to stay up late into the night answering your questions. He's the sort of God who in John 4, talks to foreign, marginalized, ostracized women who have had five husbands and are now on their sixth partner who they're not married to. 
And he's the kind of God who will go up to them in the middle of the day in the Middle East and chat to them over a well for ages if needed and then show that he knows everything about her life and that he loves her and forgives her anyway so that she goes bounding off to her village and says, come and hear the man who told me everything I ever did. That's what God's like. That's not just Jesus, as if Jesus is distinct. That is the nature of the creator of the world. He's the sort of God who in John 5, I won't do this for all 20, by the way, just saying, but he just wanted to get the picture. He's going to, John 5 turns up, lots of people, crowd of people ill, waiting to be healed, and he says, that man there has been sick for 38 years with a disability. Do you want to walk? Yeah, great, get up, walk. He's, that's what God is like. He sees people who are broken, and he says, come, and on and on it goes. John 6, the God who feeds the hungry and walks on water. John 7, the God who gives his spirit to everybody who is thirsty and wants him. John 8, the God who confronts the proud. John 9, the God who heals blind people. John 11, the God who cries at funerals. He cries at funerals. He goes along and says, there's a dead guy here. I love him. They love him. They're in tears. I weep with them. And then, by the way, says, Lazarus, come out. John 12, the kind of God who rides into a city on a donkey, even though he owns it and made it anyway. John 13, the kind of God who washes the stinking feet of his friends. John 17, the kind of God who spends his last night calling out to his father in order for, people, for them to be saved and preserved for his friends. John 18, the God who dies for his enemies. John 20, the God who rises again from death. And John 21, the God who says, now I've forgiven my friends, let's make them breakfast. That's what God is like. That's what the God who made the stars is like. John is saying, if you want to know what God is like, look at the Word, look at the Son, look at Jesus Christ, and in Him you will find everything you need to know about Him. You will look at Him and think, wow, if that is the nature of God, that is astonishingly good news for everybody who hears this message. The Father is revealed in the Son, and there is no God in heaven who isn't like Jesus. And whoever you are, that is wonderful news. Because if you're a Christian, it means you can trust him. It means he knows everything about you, and he listens, and he understands, and he cares. He loves you. And if you're not a Christian, it's wonderful news. Because it means he knows everything about you, and he listens, and he understands, and he knows, and he cares. He loves. That's the kind of God in heaven. And in a moment, we're going to celebrate communion, which is something that, as Christians, we do together to participate again in the life of Jesus by taking bread and taking red juice, which represents the body and blood of Jesus. And we do it together because in doing it, we're not just united together as a body here uh, with other believers. We actually participate in the body and blood of Jesus himself. We experience afresh, through eating and drinking, the life-giving light and power and grace of Jesus. So we're going to do that in a moment. But before we do, I want us to respond in a way that I don't think we probably have before, which is in a moment I'm going to ask you to, to stand, and then we're going to, as a response, just say the Nicene Creed, which I quoted from earlier, which is a sort of the, the summary statement of Christian doctrine, which has been around for 1,700 years, and all Christians of every stripe anywhere in the world believe it. And if you want to respond to God for the first time, you say, actually, I'm not a Christian, well, I may have believed in God before, but if that is what God is like, I want to follow him. I want to be, I want to be, I want a piece of that. I would like this to be true for me. I would like that God to be on my side. I want to be with him. Then I'd actually invite you, rather than doing a prayer, which is often how we do things here, I'd invite you just to say the creed with us for the first time. It may be the first time you've ever heard the words, but to join us in declaring what Christians believe. And as you do that, if you then have done that for the first time and you'd like to come and join us at the table over here, then do please come, take some bread, take some juice, and celebrate it with us for the first time.
It'd be wonderful if you could stand together. And we're just going to make this declaration. John and the band will just quickly come out and help us uh, go into worship in a moment. But let's, if we just put the words up here, and this declaration that there is no God in heaven who is not like Jesus. You all see? Okay. We believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all things visible and invisible. And in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, begotten from the Father before all ages, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, of the same essence as the Father, through him all things were made. Dramatic pause. For us and for our salvation, he came down from heaven. He became incarnate by the Holy Spirit of the Virgin Mary and was made human. He was crucified for us under Pontius Pilate. He suffered and was buried. The third day he rose again according to the scriptures. He ascended to heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again with glory to judge the living and the dead. His kingdom will never end. And we believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life. He proceeds from the Father and the Son, and with the Father and the Son is worshipped and glorified. He spoke through the prophets. And we believe in one holy, Catholic, and apostolic church. We affirm one baptism for the forgiveness of sins. We look forward to the resurrection of the dead and to life in the world to come. Amen. This is Christian truth. There is no God in heaven who is not like Jesus. And now in our own time, we're going to come, we're going to take bread and juice, and we're going to celebrate this glorious God revealed in Jesus Christ.